All right. Well, let's review what some things, topics, ideas, concepts you remember and have heard us say, even if you don't know what they mean, just by way of getting the juices flowing. What you got? Sufficiency, Sufficiency of what? The scriptures. Yes, the sufficiency that we don't need anything else. What else? Uh, explicit versus implicit. Explicit versus implicit. Yeah. Can anybody expound on that a little bit? What we mean when we say that? Right, yeah, so like justification by faith, you go to a passage like Romans 3, undeniable, but the Trinity would be more implicit. That word's not in the Bible, but we see all the concept and truths there. Right, good job, Robert, good thanks. All right, what else? Inerrant and infallible. Inerrant and infallible. Anybody remember what those are and their distinctiveness? Yes, can't fail. Right, right, right. Inerrant, infallible, and we need all of these. Inerrant, infallible, sufficient, all those words for the scriptures. We can't lose any of them. Inspiration. Inspiration. So, yes, inspired. What does entheonoustos mean? Is that a fancy Greek sandwich or what is it? Yes. yes. <laughs> it's made of air. <laughs> it's very keto. <laughs> what is what is theonoustos? God breathe, Theo, God, Neustos is air, wind, or spirit, and translated that way in a lot of ways in uh, the scriptures. So that's where we get from 2 Timothy 3.16. The verse most quoted in chapter 1 of the confession is right there. It's breathed out by God, comes from inside God, and then also the spirit of God we see there as the author of the scriptures because he is truly God and truly God. All right, a couple more. What else? Any, any other terms or ideas that you remember? Revelation, yes, yes. So special and general revelation, or you could say um, natural and specific, things like that. So what's, what's special revelation? Scripture. Scripture, undeniable, clear, communication, not, can't be misunderstood. What about general revelation? Nature. So the two books of God, the book of the Word and the book of nature. Right? We see that. We real, the book of nature, a general revelation, is enough to get you lost, but not enough to get you saved. We need special revelation in order to be saved, to hear the clarity of the gospel. We know there's a God because there's trees and order and cells and biology, but we need to know who is God and how we are made right with Him, and that's only through special revelation. All right, one more. Anybody got a doozy hanging in their back pocket? Right, we talk about the regulative principle, that the, that the Bible regulates all that we do. That we aren't free to invent things, particularly in worship. That if God is God and we are creatures and He is the Creator, then we must worship Him in the way that He has determined to be worshipped, not in the ways that we say, I'll give you this and you'll just accept it. That we're going to give Him what He's given to us, and that's because we believe that the Bible is inspired and errant and fallible and sufficient. We don't need to go outside of it for anything, particularly the most important thing that we do, which is worship the one true and holy God. All right, that's good. So let's look at chapter one. We're going to cover the rest of the paragraphs. So that's paragraph eight, nine, and ten. And we'll start with the first section. Oh, okay, before we do that, so we're, what we're talking about tonight, we're going to spend most of our time on Bible translations and the original languages. And it's important for a church to know and understand those things, at least in general. We don't have to be experts on all this stuff, but we need to know that. That's why it's important that's in the confession. So Luther, he translates the Bible. So a lot of this stuff, we, talk, we end up talking about Luther and the reformers, like Calvin and Zwingli and Bucer and all those guys, Beza, um, because the 1689 Confession is what we would call a Reformation Confession, meaning after the church, the true church comes out of the false Roman church, they start making confessions of faith and catechism stating what we believe. And so that's why these things are importantly in here. Uh, and it's all, and a, a big principle that we, we, we didn't mention in review, but we keep coming back to is sola scriptura, which is one of the five solas 
of the Reformation. That means just Latin for scripture alone. Luther is the one who kicks off the Reformation. He's also the first one to translate the Bible, at least the New Testament, into a vulgar language, meaning not Latin, a vernacular language. He does that in 1522. And at that time, this is how much of a big of a deal the Bible translation was in the 1500s. At that time, Germany is not a country, even though Luther is German. Luther translates the Bible because he's hiding up in a castle because the Pope wants to kill him. He's hiding. His friends kidnapped him. They fake kidnapped him just so that people would keep, quit looking for him. So he's translating the Bible, and he translates it into German, and that codifies German into a language. Because up until then, you've got to think of Germany like, uh, like you think of North America before settlers came. There's just tribes everywhere, and all their languages don't line up. Or you think of Africa, South America, Papua New Guinea, where there's tribes, there's not one common language. Luther codifies German into a language when he translates the Bible, because now this is what all these words mean, and so that becomes the German language, at least the basis for it. Secondly, English Bible. So who translates the English Bible the first? Before, so Wycliffe is there, but who's the big dog that we look to in history that translates the English Bible? Tyndale, Tyndale yes. He does that in 1526, so he's four years after Luther. He never finishes the whole Bible. He gets all of the New Testament and then parts of the Old Testament. Um, and he codifies English into a language. So if you go try to look back, if you have an English descent or UK descent, so Scottish, Irish, or whatever, uh, your last name is probably spelled, if you go back and look through history, like 10, 15 different ways. So even, it's even somebody like Charles Spurgeon, who's so big and magnanimous, or John Bunyan, trying to find their relatives, the spellings are so different for their last names, and you're having to connect which they are. They sound the same, but you're spelling Bunyan, B-U-I-O-N, instead of B-U-N-Y-A-N, or B-U-N-I-A-N. Like you just, it just, it's all over the map. There's no, stat, there's no clarity. And so if it's that way for names, it's certainly that way with every other thing. So when Tyndale translates the Bible into English, uh, he creates some English words. So let me, the word atonement did not exist in English, but Tyndale is looking at that word in the Bible and having to figure out, and he's looking at Hebrew and Greek and going, well, we don't have a word for that. So he just takes at one meant. <coughs> it's bringing back into one. So atonement, at one meant, just makes up that word. And a lot of other phrases that we, I stole, I just pulled out a few that we think are common, Tyndale and Vince. Brother's Keeper, he's the one who makes that up. He reads the Hebrew and he's like, I have no idea what that means. I guess the Brother's Keeper helps. Viper, that's a word because he makes it a word. Fisherman, uproar, undergird, all these words he's making up because he's translating from the Greek and the Hebrew. So Bible translation has a lot to do with theology and a lot to do with what we have because the Bible's that you have in your hands or on your smartphones came through a lot of blood and a lot of sweat. A lot of people died to get this into your hands, which then means it goes to all other languages because it, the, the, after Luther and Tyndale go, then it starts getting translated into Spanish and then in Italian and then in French and then it goes on and on and on. And now we have Bible translation ministries that are in the jungles all over the world figuring out what that language is, teaching them how to read their own language and then translating the Bible into their language. So it's a big deal. All right. Precursor, over, 1, 8, paragraph 8 of chapter 1. The first section says this. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nation. So we stop right there. Uh, somebody read Romans 3, 2 real quick. So... Who is? Do you know the context there, Mr. Bird? The Jews. Golly. The Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning just the word of God. So, the basic, basic, basic. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, tiny bit Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus probably actually spoke. Think of it like Texan versus English. 
or like Scottish versus like true English, right? That's Aramaic. Aramaic only appears in a pieces, tiny pieces of the Psalms and then a section of Daniel. The majority of everything else in the Old Testament is all Hebrew. And when you're looking at Hebrew, you know you're looking at Hebrew when it looks like there's a bunch of weirdly shaped squares. That's Hebrew. That's what the, the writing looks like. And Hebrew goes from right to left. It's the left-hander's dream. When I took it and I'm writing it, I'm not making any smudges on my papers. It's fantastic. Uh, but it drives right-handed people crazy because their brains are backwards. Ours are right. <laughs> New Testament's written in Greek. Now, why is that? Such, they said in the confession at the time of writing was most generally known to the nations. Does anybody know anything about the status of Greek in the first century world? Way to go, Alexander. Yeah. But Alexander's long gone by the first century. So why are they still speaking Greek? Because he wasn't Alexander the Pretty Good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that ain't a country joke. I've never heard one. <laughs> he and Alexander the Average, that boy was great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That is, that is not my joke. <laughs> now, there you go. Uh, so, yeah. So the Greek, even though at the time of the first century, who are the big bad boys in Jesus and Paul's day? The Romans, and they speak Latin, but they're also still using Greek because that's the lingua franca. That's just to make, that makes me feel smart to say that. That means the, the common language. It's a trade language. Like right now, English is the trade language right now. You got to know English to engage in international business and trade. And if you don't know anything, at least you know English, which means that Americans are the stupidest people in the world because we don't know any other language. Every other country in the world knows at least another language. We just go, nah, y'all learn our language. Anyways, uh, so Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, New Testament is in Greek. Now, they are pointing out, or they, meaning the, the, the divines, the, the men who wrote the confession, that it's important to know those languages. Why would it be important for the leaders of the church, the shepherds of the church, to know the languages that the Bible was originally written in? So they could read it, and I can understand it. You could accurately translate mm -hmm. into the modern vernacular. Right, yeah. What would happen? Well, I'm not, what if you made the argument, man, we already got, we got good ones. You don't need to worry about those old languages. Well, it's just, it's just like them not teaching kids cursive in school today. You wouldn't be able to reach the original documents, and you wouldn't know what it said. And they could just translate it and tell you that it said absolutely anything, and you would have to believe them because you're at a loss. Yes. Yeah, the, what we're having to admit when we go to translations is that I'm dependent upon somebody else telling me what the Bible says. And we're thankful for godly men who are well-educated, humble, brilliant, who can translate it for us. But we got to have faithful, actual Christians, not just scholars, who know the original languages. Otherwise, we're up a creek. So the Reformation, I brought up Martin Luther. Do you know what passage it was that sparked him to begin to question the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church? It's in Romans, but it's not five. It's Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. Now, what the Roman Church was using at that time was the Latin Vulgate. So that's the Bible translated into Latin. They said that's the real deal. But Luther was a scholar. Luther was... Uh, a monk, but he worked at the College of Wittenberg, so he's highly educated, and he's reading the Bible, that the New Testament, in actual Greek, and he's comparing it to the Latin, and the Latin is saying that God is declaring, or God is making us righteous, that's what justification is, versus God declaring, or counting, or reckoning us righteous, and you get that wrong, that's how you end up with Catholicism and Protestantism. Because Catholicism says you're not justified until you actually are totally, fully righteous. God is making you righteous. So you're not justified, meaning saved, until you are perfectly righteous. That's what the Latin Vulgate says. But then Luther, with the, uh, the, uh, the one of the cries of the Protestant Reformation was ad uh, fontis. What does that mean, somebody who just said that? To the source. To the source. I mean, the, to the fount, to the spring. 
go to run the creek all the way back up until where it starts. And that's the original languages. So we got to have them. And we got to have people who know them. We don't all have to know them, but somebody has to know them. And that person needs to be born again. They can't just be somebody who's just a, a dry general scholar because that makes a difference. All right. So it keeps going. <laughs> hey, he might be in heaven. <laughs> All right. Uh, next, next sentence goes on in chapter uh, or in paragraph eight. Being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentic, meaning the Old and New Testament. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. All right, let's read Isaiah 8.20, somebody. Eight twenty. That's to, it. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this world, it is because they have no dawn. All right. So this this is a heightened moment. This is a call, a charge to the teaching, to the testimony. Like <laughs> that's where we go. If they won't speak according to God's word, God's teaching, God's testimony, then they have no dawn, meaning they have no light. That's what we go to. So they are the the. The manuscripts of the Old and New Testament are authentic, they are preserved, and they are the measure of standard. So what does it say in there? It has this unique phrase, um, by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages. What does it mean the Bible has been kept pure in all ages? The message hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. Yeah. What else does it mean? It did not pass away. So this is the doctrine of preservation. Yes, heaven and earth will pass away. That We say it every Sunday morning, right? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That's just Isaiah 40, verse 8. That can God, can God preserve his word? What becomes true necessarily about God and then thus about us as his church, if we don't have a doctrine of preservation and we can't trust that it was kept pure in all ages. Either God's immutable or he's powerless. Two big problems. God can change or God is weak. God speaks, but he just can't make it get all the way to the 21st century or the 20th century or the 18th century or the 16th century with the Reformation. So the doctrine of preservation about the Bible, that's a criticism of God. That's not us just being what uh, liberals will accuse us of, of bibliolatry, like, oh, you just are idolatizing or idolizing the Bible and you're worshiping it. No, we're not. <laughs> it came perfectly under the door. <laughs> oh, I know. So they're like, you go get it. You go get it. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Oh, hoodlums. Mallory's looking out the door. She knows. Oh, man. Uh, uh, Mal, you did it. <laughs> uh, <coughs> um, but the, do the doctrine of preservation is not merely limited to these pages. It extends all the way up to God. Every doctrine that we pull out of all of the scripture speaks to God directly. It's not just nerd categories. We, this is us knowing and then thus defending the one true God. If God can't preserve his word, then what good is God? What good is it that he spoke? If we can't know that this is true, so we have to affirm this. And that's why Isaiah 8, 20 says what it says. Like we go there. And if it doesn't line up with that, then we don't need it. Isaiah 40, verse 8, Jesus' words in Matthew, <coughs> Matthew 12, not one jot or tittle will pass away of this law. Um, if the Bible hasn't pres preserved purely, we got problems. What you got, Paul? Yeah. 
Right. Oh, the Holy Spirit gave me a word. Right, yeah, which goes back to sufficiency always, right, yeah. Yeah, the, the, so if it's not kept pure in all ages, and God didn't providentially do that, so we have a bad doctrine of providence, but also that puts our theology in line with Islam. Mm -hmm. Islam says the Bible, yeah, that was the word of God, but it wasn't kept pure in all ages. It's got problems. So they say you can trust the Psalms, and you can trust some of Moses, but you can't really trust anything else. They really distorted Jesus and other things, so the Christians have kind of ruined it. It was good, but they just couldn't keep it pure all the way through. Mormons say the same thing, and you would know, yeah. Yeah. And it says there at the end of that sentence, uh, so as in all controversies of religion, meaning of the Christian faith, think, think of being in the 1600s, what religion means, um, the church is finally to appeal to them, meaning the Old and the New Testament. So we resolve controversies in Christ's church by the authority of the Bible. Not by feeling, not by experience, but by the Bible. There's no higher adjudicator of truth in the church than the Bible. That's why you get into problems when the, the pastor is the authority in the church. Because now his word can't be challenged and his word can always change. The authority in the church does not reside with me or that pulpit or our elders. It resides here. This is the authority in the church. And if anyone in the church, whoever they are, can come and show us that you are not being faithful to the word, you said contrary to this, then we, as elders, leadership, pastor, pulpit, have to bow to this. This is the authority in the church, not any man. His words are in red. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's true. Jimmy Swagger has a study Bible, and his words are in red. Paul has one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that when you die, we know that you weren't really reading it. <laughs> um, okay. Well, now we're going to get to the big chunk. So we're going to read a lot of scriptures, but let me read um, this paragraph number three or, or number eight, uh, the last part of it, uh, and then we'll read some verses. All right, but because these original languages are not known to all the people of God, which is true, talked about that, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures. You see that? The, the, the divines put in there that all believers have a right to the Bible. Nobody can keep you from that, and if anybody tries to shroud that, they're stamping stomping upon a biblical right that you have and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search the scriptures. All Christians are. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language. Vulgar means vernacular language, the normal language, not some, some language of the academy, which was Latin at the time. Um, of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. It's a big deal. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the verses that go with that. There's a bunch. I'm just going to assign them out. Mike, will you go to Acts 15, 15? <coughs> Paul Rasmussen, will you go to John 5, 39? Uh, who wants to read a lot? Paul Bird, 1 Corinthians 14, and you're going to just get there and start at verse 6. And I'll tell you the pieces to read. And if, if you don't see them in your copy there. Uh, and then Barbie. Will you read Colossians 3.16? Yeah. Last? Okay. All right, Mike. Hit us with Acts 15.15. 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So they cut it off right there just because they want you to see the point that the prophets agree. The Bible is consistent internally. So they need to be known and as written as known. All right, John 5, 39. Paulie. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So we should be searching the scriptures with Christ in mind and in our hearts, which the Pharisees that, were, that are being rebuked right there were not doing. All right, Paul Bird. 1 Corinthians 14, you got 6, and then 9 through 11, 24 and 28. Okay. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I prophet you unless I speak to you 
unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, you can just get down to verse 24. Right. Yeah. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convinced, convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And then verse 28. So 1 Corinthians 14, let's just give it a quick summary of what's going on there. Speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues in the Bible is always speaking in a language, a known language. That's why it says in verse uh, 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, but none of them is without meaning. So the point of that passage is that people in that church were just jumping up and speaking in foreign languages at a metropolitan city like Corinth, and nobody knew what they was, was going on. You're speaking Latin or you're speaking Ethiopian and none of us understand any of that. So what you're saying in church is worthless. I can't understand it. I have to be able to understand it in order for it to be impactful, for it to be, have any purpose. So that's the point of uh, the divines quoting that. And then Barbie, read Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thank you. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Everybody, that's supposed to happen to everybody in the church. And that can only happen if there is translations in our language. Now, what was Rome's resistance to that? Why didn't they want the Bible translated? People will twist it. People will twist it. That's putting it in the best light. Why did they really not want it to be translated? Because it can't control you. Yeah, they can't control the flow of information. And you could call them out on something. Wait a minute, I don't see purgatory in here. Wait a minute, I don't see Mary worship in here. I mean, you just go down the list and it would be anybody that can read would be able to know. So you lose control. And then in the best light, if you're going to give people who are resistant to it early on in the Reformation the benefit of the doubt, it's because, yeah, you might, you might twist it, but... We also believe what we talked about a couple weeks ago on the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that Scripture explains Scripture. All right, so, yes? So before, or I don't know my history well enough, but the time period before uh -huh. the Reformation, was there a time like the Dark Ages the, yeah. where literacy, there wasn't, people couldn't read? So That's also true. So maybe originally the church, not Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. So that's definitely part of it. So if you go back to like, there's a process before you get to 1517 with Luther going, what in the world are you doing selling indulgences? And it's not all just wicked, sinister, evil people from <coughs> John's death in 8090 up to 1517. So where you have uh, literacy, you have it in the church. Because who's going to make sure we can read? The people who have a Bible. And so that's where the schools are. That's where the college is. All colleges at the Reformation time and even most all of Europe are all church-based. That's why the three main professions have always been medical, physicians, lawyers, and pastors. We've got to take care of your body. We've got to live civilly, and you have to be spiritually guided. That's the three professions, and the church did all of that. So you're right, the, the, people, the, the literacy is so bad and language is so basic at the time or, or devolves from high Greek, because Greek is a sophisticated language, uh, nobody can read. You have to go to the church to read, and the church, limited resources, limited people, like we're going to make sure we train at least the clergy. They got to be able to read, be able to give it to the people, which of course Satan takes and then turns into a power struggle, right? But yeah, that's a good point. Printing press comes around in the late 1400s, but it's in the, pre in the Reformation, the 1500s, when it explodes, when Luther, really, he's the guy who starts printing pamphlets, like short little things that are cheap and easy to print, and they get spread all over. They, those are like early blog posts. 
and you could sell them everywhere. He's the first guy to really capitalize on that, and he was way better at it, and there was, he was making way more money than the Catholics were. So printers all wanted Luther stuff because people bought it. And so it was capitalism. It was God using capitalism, in a sense, to spread it all the way around. Um, but we got to have translations because we got to have clarity for all, truth for all. And if God is the father to each individual Christian, doesn't each individual Christian have the right to hear the voice of God? And that's, if you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear it out loud, read the Bible out loud. That's God speaking to his children. Thus saith the Lord. So we got to be Bereans, like Acts 17, 11, to go back and read the scriptures. Check. So the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, they hear Paul preach. They say, that sounds pretty good. We'll go home and check our Bibles to make sure that what you're saying is true. And they did. So we all should be Bereans. All right. So here's the... Here's the big dog and pony show we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about Bible translations in English because there's a lot of confusion on that. It needs to be translated in English, and we have, we by far, as a language group, have the, the most embarrassment of riches when it comes to Bible translations. I mean, even, even languages like Spanish that encompass more than half the globe don't have what English has population-wise uh, percentage of, as far as Bible translations, there's like a couple of Spanish translations. Something like French or um, uh, a Portuguese, Brazil, like big population numbers. It's, it's not even close to what we have in English. So therefore, we have a responsibility to use them wisely and rightly. So let me, I'm going to hopefully educate us all on a little bit on how translations work. So I got here uh, just a, a line graph. On this end, we're going to have formal equivalents. On this end, we're going to have dynamic equivalents. Every English Bible fits somewhere on this graph. Formal equivalence is what you could think of as word-for-word -word translation. Dynamic equivalence is what you can think of as thought-for-thought. -thought. Now, just even saying that, I have to qualify it because word-for-word -word is not word-for-word. -word. Just like I said a couple Sundays ago, what, just let any language into any other language, you don't have a one-word-for-one-word -one -word correlation. It's totally different things. My illustration in the sermon was quinceanera. Give me one English word for quinceanera. You can't. I got to give you a bunch of words for you to understand what quinceanera means. So then also think about this. Uh, when God when is described as being hot with wrath, in some, some places, some like, particularly like tribes in Africa, or, or tribes in Papua New Guinea, rather, hot is a good thing. Cold is a bad thing. So we would say, like, well, coal, it just, we have to figure out what we're trying to get at. So everybody, even if you're trying to say we're word for word and literal and all that, you're having to be a little dynamic. <coughs> Otherwise, what was the point of that? I translated it literally, and you have no idea what it means. Or you have the opposite understanding of what the original authors intended. So Bible translation is pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult to do. And if you've ever translated even just your own language or interpreted your own language, like Spanish to English or things like that, you know that you're like, oh, man. you got to ask Miguel because Miguel used to translate live stream for Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church into Spanish. And he, you know, Tommy Nelson would use some illustration from some old movie. And he's like, oh, oh. he's having to figure out what that is. Or he's using some football analogy to a world that only knows soccer as football. He's having to translate what that means and all that kind of stuff. It's difficult. So... Bible translations fit here. This is the, the stated goal of Bibles on this end are like we're trying to be study, clarity, as, as reliable as possible so that you as a non-Greek and Hebrew reader are getting as close to as possible of what the Greek and Hebrew actually says, even if it sounds kind of clunky in English. So is it the meaning of the word according to the context? Context lexicons, history, I mean, you got to factor in all of these things. Lexicons is just a fancy word for dictionaries, uh, and, but dictionaries for dead languages and things like that. These guys over here are trying to get you as readable as possible. That, that's the goal, stated goal over here. We want this to be easy to read, 
for you to get and for you to understand, okay? Now, I can, I can give you a book if you ever want to borrow. It's called One, One Bible, Many Versions, to where it just shows evidence where Bibles down here went word for word on the same verse where Bibles over here went thought for thought. So you, it, they're not, they, they have stated goals in the front of the Bible translation, but they don't always follow those to the letter. But that's, that's what they're trying to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put marks all along this graph. Let's just make a midpoint. It's not going to be exactly in the middle, but that's our midpoint. All right. <clears throat> Big dog on the market. Most popular Bible of all time is what? King James. King James. KJV. Does anybody know when the King James is written? 1611. But is that the King James that we have right now? No, no we have the 1769. King James, which is still older than America. Long time Bible. King James is written on a 12th grade reading level, and it is as formal equivalence as you can get. Formal equivalence as you can get. It's lasted for a super long time. Uh, you also need to know what I'm going to tell you also, too, is publishing, when it was published, and who owns it, and then also uh, how many revisions there's been. Because King James has had minor ones, it's finalized in 1769. In the United States, the King James is public domain. Nobody owns it. And that's a really good thing, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit. Uh, and in the UK, the British Crown owns it. Uh, if you get a Bible like this one right here, this one is uh, printed by Cambridge Bible Printers. Uh, oh, I mean, this isn't a King James, though. Sorry, dog. Uh, my other one is. Uh, but it has the, like, the royal crown of England on it and the Queen of England and she has a publisher that they all have to go through. They have to all be cleared through this publisher in Scotland before they're sent out to other places to actually be printed. So anyway, so that's the King James. Um, yeah. And it's based on, we're going to get on this too in a little bit, where it's based on the received text of the Greek. And it's the only one, Texas Receptus in Latin. We'll talk about that here more in a little bit. All right, so the next dog up on the list that's close to this end is the NASB, New American Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible was published when? Does anybody know? 1971. 1971, and it's, it's been revised in 77, 95, and 2020. It's owned by the Lachman Foundation, which is just kind of, Lachman was just like a family, a Christian guy who knew some scholars and wanted to make a really formally equivalent Bible, uh, and so did that. Uh, and it's written on about 11th grade reading level, and it's based on the critical text of the Greek, and I'll write that down over here. So we got received text, and these are manuscripts. These are things that, these are the pieces of the paper that they translate from. And we'll talk about the difference of, of what that means in a little bit. All right, so then what did I have after that? New King James. New King James is a little further down the line. It's a little closer to the middle. It's written in the 80s, 81, 82. It's revised in 84. Hasn't really been touched since. It's never been a big player in the market. Uh, it's owned by, um, it's owned by uh, Thomas Nelson, which is a Christian publisher, which is owned by HarperCollins, which is not a Christian publisher, which is owned by News Corp, which owns things like the Wall Street Journal and stuff like that. We'll talk about why that's a problem a little bit later. Uh, but it's more formal equivalence, and it's actually based on the received text also, but it has notes about the critical text. I'll explain what all that means here in a little bit. We're just going to get them all on the board first. And it's on a seventh grade reading level. Now, then you have next, you have... The uh, big dog in the market share is the new international version, the NIV. Now, it's all the way over here. That's their goal. Stated goal is we want to be readable as possible. We know we're translating thought for thought, idea for idea, concept for concept more. It's published originally uh, in 78, but it doesn't make a big impact until 84. It's updated in 2011, and everybody hates it because it goes kind of liberal-ish. Because it's owned by Zondervan, which is a massive publishing company, which is owned by HarperCollins, which is, which is not a Christian company, which is owned by News Corp, which owns Wall Street Journal and things like that. So same company owns these two Bibles. Um, then you go, and that's on a 7th, 8th grade reading level. 
Then you go to the ESV, which the ESV is probably, depends on who you are. A lot of this is taste. The ESV is in here, and so you, you could maybe even move it a little bit on the other side of the New King James. It's a little, it's a little smoother. But their, their stated goal is to be a formal equivalent uh, version of the Bible. It's written in 2001, so it's in college right now if you're a kid, right? That's how old the ESV is, just so we have a perspective on that. It's owned by Crossway, which is a Christian publishing company, um, and that's, that's where the line ends. So it's owned by just a Christian publishing company, that's it. It's been updated, though, since 2001. It got updated in 07, in 2012, and then 2016. Yeah, 2011, yeah, 2007, 2011, 2016. So in less than 20 years, it's been updated four times? We should think about that. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, and it's based on the critical text. Everything but the King, but the King James and the New King James is critical text, which we'll talk about. Um, then you have the New Living. New Living is as far on this end as you can get. The NLT, which was derivative of the Living Bible. Does anybody remember the Living Bible from the 70s? Green. The big green monster had the foam cover kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's like... It only came in that one style. The, the NLT, it, it actually was translated by scholars. So people are like, nah, that's not the Bible. Then you have the nearly infallible version and you have the non-literal translation or whatever. And people do all kinds of jokes about it. Um, but its goal, stated goal, was to be as readable as possible. It's on a sixth grade reading level. And it's owned by Tyndale Publishers, which is a Christian publisher. Uh, and that's kind of the end of the line uh, for them. There are scholars that worked on that, like, but they were not like, the not the, well, the Living Bible, I don't know that much about it. Nobody really talks about it anymore. The Living Translation was, was translated by one man. Yeah. No, the message was translated by one guy. No, the Living Translation. That was Eugene Peterson. Yeah. No, the, um, the Living Bible was translated by one man. Tyndale yeah. publishers bought the Living Bible. That's it. They bought the rights, and then they put some scholars on it. And then they put some scholars on it and made the New Living yeah. Translation in 1998. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, 98, or 98 or 96. That's when it was published? Yes, published 96. Um, then you have the new kid on the block. The new kid on the block, which is going to be right here, LSB. That's the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a derived from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it came out in 21. It's owned by 316 Publishing, which is owned by the Lockman Foundation, which owns the New American Standard. Uh, and it's on 11th grade reading level. And then you had two Bibles that never really got any press. Nobody really cared about them, uh, at least for very long. But it was the RSV yeah. and then the NRSV. Paul had, Paul had one. Any uh, Lutherans? <laughs> So the, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version. Revised Standard Version comes out in 1946, and everybody immediately deems it liberal. It's the first, it's the first real legitimate competitor uh, on a big scale. The ASV came out in 1901, but we're not going to mess with that one. Uh, the RSV came out, and it was the first big competitor to the King James. And, and they, it got slammed as a liberal Bible. Do you know why? For one major reason. In the book of Isaiah, when it says that a virgin will give birth, will conceive and give birth, they translated it to young woman. And that they knew that there were some liberal Cambridge and Yale Harvard scholars that didn't believe in the virgin birth, and they jumped all over that, so RSV got tanked hard. And then NRSV comes out, and nobody cares anymore because everybody else realized, hey, we could translate the Bible besides the King James. And they, they were gone by that point. But, but they're on a high reading level. And, and the reason why these are also unreliable is that they're owned by the National Council of Churches, which is notoriously liberal. It's like Episcopalians and PCUSA and ELCA Lutherans. And so they don't, nobody, nobody reads that. The UMC uses the NRSB. Yeah, because they're a part of the National Council of Churches. What are the years? Uh, 1946 for the RSV. And then the NRSV comes out in like the 70s or the 80s, uh, but by then the, the ship was sunk. But were those bars, ecclesiastical text, received text? No, they, these are critical texts, okay. yeah. Did they ever amend the virgin comment in Isaiah? I don't know. I, I've never actually owned an RSV Bible. I just am not interested. What's the, what's the uh, yeah. Do you know what the text is in Isaiah? 
Uh, it says A9 or 11, I can't remember. Uh, and then we got one more. One more on there, and they claim to be right here. The CSB, Christian Standard Bible. This Christian Standard Bible comes out in 2017. Uh, it's derivative from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which was a product of the 90s, uh, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's 2009 was the last update of the Holman. They dropped Holman, because that sounds weird, and they just put CSB on there and pumped it out and said it was a big collaborative effort, and it's an optimal equivalence, which doesn't exist on any of this. It was just a marketing tactic because this is owned by uh, B&H Publishing, or no, by Holman Christian Publishing, which is owned by Lifeway, which is owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. So <coughs> you know those Baptists, they can market, and so they said, this is the best Bible. It's both of these things at the same time, <laughs> and it's not. Well, they got a lot of sales because they had the Spurgeon Study Bible come out in the CSB, and I bought one just because I wanted the, the Spurgeon, <laughs> the Spurgeon notes. Christian, just Christian Standard Bible. Okay, so, so now we got them all up there. Uh, and the point of this is not to bag on anything, but what I want to do is just have everybody think. The reason I pointed out that all of these are owned by somebody is because you need to realize you are being marketed too. What could possibly happen if somebody owns the Bible that's not the church? What could happen? Anything can happen. Changes can happen. I pointed out all of the updates. Why? What has changed since 2001 that you need to update the ESV four times? Why? Is language different from 2001 to 2022? Can we understand each other? And then the NASB. Why do you need a 2020 update? I'm pretty sure I, I was alive in 95 and I was speaking English. Same English that I was now. So what changed? English or these? Can't say these changed. So it's, interpretation. it's interpretation or it's a straight up money grab because we are idiots. It's new. I got to get the new one. Why? What's different about it? Nothing. So they just keep updating it to where the pastor reads it and then yours doesn't sound the same and you got to go buy a new Bible because they're all companies. ESV is owned by Crossway. Crossway is a great publisher. Great publisher. I don't have any problem with the ESV. You know I preach from it a lot. But I, what I'm just pointing out is, why are we updating it? The NIV updates from the 1984 version. Not, the NIV was the first real competition, like monetarily, to the King James. The first thing that ever even touched it. And it was the first one to actually overtake it in sales. This had one year on top in the early 2000s, and then it went away and it went back to NIV. NIV translated the 2011 when they made that update. They did a couple of things like gender neutral stuff, um, a couple other weird things, and everybody got furious. So then Zondervan, who owns it, backed off. So, okay, okay, sorry. And then they got D.A. Carson to edit a study Bible. So they go, no, no, we really are. We really believe the Bible's inerrant, so we don't. Well, okay, you all got mad. Sorry. Please buy them again. They did that, but they have a TNIV, a teen new internet, and it's, it's garbage. What's but they just keep. Teen? Teens, because teens can't understand English. Even though this is written on a seventh grade level. That's a teenager. Why are we trying to make it any different? Ball came in again? Yeah. I bet it was Shane, 100%. Uh, this is owned by an actual church that's relatively conservative right now, or at least a denomination. Uh, so that's kind of a good thing, but denominations can go bad too. The only one who only get it, Mal, uh, put a pillow or something in front of that door. Uh, the only one that's can't be hasn't been changed in hundreds of years is the King James and nobody owns it it's public domain so nobody can change it it's been the exact same and then let's think about this the the first guy to jump on the scene a new translation is RSV in the 40s it gets scuttled nobody likes it then then you don't have any competition until the new American Standard comes out in 71 how many of y'all were alive before 1971? You don't have to raise your hands. I'm just, that was rhetorical. <laughs> so let's just face the facts is that faithful people were born and lived that are alive right now that never had anything but the King James Bible. Dude, was Christianity okay? Do we understand it? I mean, think about, think about this. Uh, 
when John MacArthur, who's still alive and pastoring right now, when he started his ministry, that's the only thing that existed. He's way older than the NASB or the New King James or any of these. This is Shane's age. I mean, part of it you have to go through like reliability. Like we need to be critically thinking about these things um, and knowing what's really going on. Now, the reason the LSB comes around is because the NASB 2020 update was unacceptable to a group of scholars. And they were like, we don't want that. So they asked the Lockman Foundation, can we do our own translation? Because nobody wants the 2020 NASB. You just, you turned on your market. What? Do you know they, I don't know. I never bought one because I don't want one. It was inclusive language. Inclusive language. So like the, yeah, gender neutrality and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, there's, we, what we don't need to, what we need to recognize is that anything written since the 1940s in English, we can all understand. We don't need updates. We don't need anything new. So we need to just, not saying that it, this is an ESV right here. It's a goat skin. It's even, it's really nice. Uh, Why do you need so many different types of I'm going to get to that. Hold on. That's, I have a reason. <laughs> no. Uh, but we need to think through all of these kinds of things. The other thing, remember what we just read in, in paragraph 8, kept pure in all ages. That's what I'm coming back to this for. Received text versus the critical text. I can go pull them out of my office if you want to look at them. I have both of these. This is the text that's translated... Uh, uh, the Greek is mostly referring to the Greek because the Hebrew is pretty standard. We've had that one for way longer than we've had the, the Greek, New Testament. This is what uh, the King James is based on in 1611, based on a collaboration of old biblical texts like on papyrus and animal hides, stuff that we'll see on that field trip we talked about last week. Um, and that's done in the 1500s by Erasmus. And Theodore Beza picks up the work. And then a guy named Stephanus picks up the work. And that's what translates the Bible. The Bible that we have, the most popular English Bible until the 80s. That, that's what it's based on. Then the critical text comes around and a bunch of scholars who are pretty bored. And they say, well, we found more manuscripts and they're older. And they decided that older is always better. If this is older, it must be more true. Now, there's some logic to that. You're like, okay, you're closer to the life of Peter and Paul and James and Jesus. But were there heretics back then too? Heretics are always everywhere. So in theory, the idea sounds pretty good to have the critical text um, go for it. But it's not necessarily true that older is always better. But that's what they translated from, and that's what everything but the King James and New King James is based off of. Now, it's reliable. If you, if you pulled out your King James Bible and your ESV Bible, you would not see any differences. The only thing that you would see is a few missing verses. And you would see brackets at the end of Mark 16 saying, ah, we don't think this is probably in there in the oldest manuscripts. Or you see brackets around John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Ah, we don't think this was in the oldest manuscripts. But in the King James, there's no brackets and it's all in there. So there's, there's debate and struggle, which you should engage with. And if you want to talk to me about it more, I'm not pr trying to propagandize anything. Um, but just saying that, that that's discussion is out there. This was all done by men who, the received text, who were faithful, who loved the Lord, and then who died for the Bible. Many, many men who worked on the critical text are not even Christians. They're just ancient Greek scholars. So we, we, that's what we're, we're dealing with, we're wrestling with when it comes to the Bible. So that, but this again, this is all an English problem. You don't have this problem if you speak Swahili. You just have the Bible and that's it. So anyways, any questions on any of that? That's a whole lot. <coughs> anyway, oh, hey, then, oh wait, go ahead. What's your favorite? My favorite, so I, I, live, I live here. I like all those. I do have an NASB. I have a lot of NASB. I never got these. Oh, I thought you said. I no, NRSV. Okay. A lot of letters, and they all sound the same. And there's all V's and B's, and yeah, they're all the same. So no, no, no. I love these right here. Okay. Now here's why. Here's here's the tip that I. So Paul said, "Why do you have so many Bibles?" He said it very judgmentally and rudely. I hope everybody heard that. Uh, <laughs> 
so many different covers. Oh, covers. <laughs> That's because I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, but what we have in studying the scriptures is a huge blessing in English because you could take all of these and you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be whatever. And you're just stumped because you, you live down here. I can't, I just don't get what they're talking about. So go and read one of these. And you're like, oh, okay, now I can have a little bit of footing and I can come back here and I get back to it. Now over here is where you're going to want to study because lots of study tools are keyed to these Bibles, particularly this guy, this guy, and this guy. They, they, have, they have tool like concordances, dictionaries that are keyed to those words. So you don't have to know Greek, but you can find out what the word means in Greek by looking it up in an English concordance. So these are made for study, but if you're just reading casually or you're getting your kids to start reading, go down there. But I'll tell you what, my kids can understand this. When I read it to them, and when Mallory reads it herself, she has, she has an NASB that she carries around. The other, the other plug that I'll make for the King James, it gets so much bad press because all the crazy people have the King James. And they're just like, hey, man, that's that. They believe that this is God's word. This is the Hebrew and Greek. And it's not. <laughs> it's just not. But... If you can practice reading the King James, because it's written on 12th grade reading level, which is the highest one out of all these, the, 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 we know the language is archaic, but you know that thou means you. You know that goeth means goes. It's not hard. But what you'll do is you'll slow you down. So when you go to seminary and you start having to read Hebrew and Greek, the benefit that you gather is like, man, when I'm reading my Bible in Greek, it slows me down. I can't just breeze over stuff. Because now I'm looking and it's because it's foreign. So this will slow you down. So go read your favorite verses in the King James and be renewed and, and be slowed down. Be challenged when that word is, is man, that's a different word. Is that that's helpful. Also, if you want to connect with church history in the past, you read the King James, you're unlocking for yourself Spurgeon, the Puritans, uh, the reformers, because they wrote English in King James sounding English. So a lot of reasons that those books, which are so good, those helpful things are so hard is because of the English. But if you're practicing reading the King James, which just start in Matthew and read about Jesus, you know what's going on. It's not hard. You can figure it out. That gets your feet wet. Then you can go and you can read The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. You can go and read Pilgrim's Progress without the updated language and just read it in the beauty that it is. And then you think about every funeral I've ever been to, I just was doing one a couple weeks ago. When everybody quotes Psalm 23, you quote it in the King James. Yeah. And every time you say John 3:16, you say it in the King James. We do, I mean, it's, it's, it's a blessing. I mean, think about like the problem that we have now with all these translations is that I get up there and I'm preaching and I say, well, NIV says this and the ESV says this, the NASB says this. And if you've got a King James with you, it says this. How great would it be if we all had the same? And it was that way till the 80s and <laughs> just about every church. The bulk of Billy Graham's ministry is with the King James Bible. Think about that. So anyways, make a plug for that. It's not dead. You should use it. It's great. And you can get it for free because it's public domain. You what get it on your, computer. What if your NASB is the 2020? I don't know anything about it. Burn it. Burn it. <laughs> no, uh, I don't know. Honestly, I can't comment on it. All I know is that John MacArthur and his group, they were like, this isn't any good. And so they you wear a mask when you read it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was also the worst year to brand your Bible with. Like I got the 2020 version. Like, oh, is it come pre-COVID on it? Like it comes with it's already all vaxxed and everything. Um, yeah. The net. So the net is I didn't put it on here because it's it's pretty obscure, um, but it's going to be it's going to it's going to be over here. It's a DTS guys did that, and they, they were going for the most literal thing. So it has study notes in it, but it's all translation-based. It's like why we chose this English word versus that English word, why we went against the NASB, the KJV, the ESV, the NIV, and translated it like this. Um, so it was a DTS project. It's never been picked up by a major publisher, um, which take it or leave it. But a lot of this also is that we hand out so many PhDs in the United States <laughs> Uh, to biblical scholars, so they got to have something to do. So every time a publisher comes and says, you want to work on the translation? They're like, oh, yeah, finally, I can use my degree. 
because they don't want to preach and they don't want to shepherd anybody. So, anyways. Are there any translations that you recommend not using? Uh, I wouldn't use the NLT regularly, and I wouldn't use the NIV 2011 regularly at all. NIV 84, if you got that one, which they kinda, I think they've brought back, you can get that one, is still good. The, and then you can get the NASB 95 still. You can buy that, and you just look for the 1995 version, which is kind of annoying to have to do, but it's still good. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what like everybody told us to get as kids. My parents were told, get that for your kids. And we were like, oh, OK, we got it. So there's, it's, it was good. Just don't get imitation leather. Don't get imitation leather. Get goat skin. Or I have, I have deer skin and buffalo. I got, I'll show them to you if you want. What? <laughs> I, I just want to put a plug in. Whatever you do, stay away from this new book that's been written by one man called The Passion Translation. And the only thing that's translation oh, yeah. about it is it's actually <laughs> it says, Jesus had tears of anguish and, and compassion streaming down his face. So yeah, That's not a Bible. That's, yeah. That's why it's not even on here. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, oh, man. We got paragraph 9 and 10 to go. You know what? We'll just pick that up next time. We could do one more week, huh? Yeah. All right. We'll do one more week. I didn't know this would take that long. <laughs> but that's that. We'll do we'll do the rest of nine, and uh, and or all of nine and all of ten next week. NIV eighty four good, two thousand eleven bad. Uh, but they did they did backtrack. <coughs> so I have an NIV. <coughs> I have an NIV study Bible that's they changed it to now to like the systematic theology study Bible whatever. But D.A. Carson's the editor for it, and then um, a bunch of other really conservative, reformed-ish guys. They gave it away at T4G because they were like, hey, y'all buy our stuff again. We, we backtracked. Sorry, we whiffed it a little while ago. Like, so. can, I, uh, can I poke you real quick? Yeah, poke at uh, me. The uh, received text. Ooh. How many uh, manuscripts do they have? Yeah, so that's the debate. So the received text and the critical text. Um, there's the critical text uses upwards of 6,000 manuscripts. So the sheer volume of that is overwhelming. And it's, the, wow, what a wealth that we have uh, to compare them to. So you can look at each other and you're looking at this massive wealth. So kept pure in all ages, absolutely, God's revealed that to us. But what we can't say is that they didn't have the real Bible until some Iranian kid threw a rock down in a valley and it broke a pot and we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 50s. We have to have had the Bible before that. Otherwise, the confession is a lie, kept pure in all ages. So that's the debate that goes back and forth. And you can get online and find hours and hours and hours of people just yelling at each other over this, which is a complete <laughs> waste of time. Uh, we believe that Bibles kept pure in all ages. And I've read the entire King James Bible and I'm like, yep, this sounds like Bible. And I read the entire NASB and ESV. This is Bible. We're just having debate over just minuscule things. But the, the miraculous evidence of providence is, is that even in an era in the 1500s when the world is so divided, so war-torn, the Reformation is going on. People are being killed over Christian beliefs. People are being killed over who gets baptized. That God still has a full 66-book canon in the original languages for us to have. So we're thankful, we're thankful for that. So, yeah, if you were really bored and you want to get riled up, go look up debates over Textus Receptus is the Latin word, and then the critical text. Sir, you yeah. mentioned that a lot of these changing in the 70s, 80s, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, you're right. Like just the advancement of it all, right? Like we just have a we have a more uh, complex economy, and we have more technology. Oh yeah. So you're looking at more things. Yeah. And you're looking at them, and then you're also now you're seeing gaps in the market. 
you're like, oh man, nobody's all the way on this end. We could really fill a hole there and make some money. Uh, again, that's me thinking the worst. That's not probably not all their motives. Well, like Bezos, yeah. you know, he was limited. He couldn't collate manuscripts. He didn't right. have access to a whole lot. Most people in his day didn't travel much more than 10 miles from their house. Easily. He, he had what he had access to, and he did a great job with it. I'm yeah. Oh, we're so thankful for, for that. But that's part of what the, uh, the field trip, when we go to the, the Center for New Testament Manuscripts, what they do is collate manuscripts and make them available to everybody over computers. Like you can, you can see it online and you access it and look at it. Whereas before you actually had to get on a boat, go to this obscure island in the Aegean Sea where a Greek monastery is there and they've had this one manuscript for a thousand years and you look at it and read it and then you leave and they can't do anything about it. Well, now you take a high-res picture of it and everybody can look at it and everybody can see it. And that's what the center does um, for a lot of things. So anyways, there it is. Uh, I was going to say one other thing about it. Well, doesn't matter. Let's pray. James, will you pray for us? Sure. Dear Lord, thank you for your church, and thank you for um, this, this thing that we call the Bible. You're inspired, you're infallible, you're inerrant, perfect revelation to us. Lord, thank you that we're able to have... Uh, a possession of it so that we can frequent it and learn more about you, hear your word, uh, so that we may live your word. So, Lord, as we go from here, would we be inspired to revisit your word from uh, each day and, and learn more from it? And so, Lord, thank you for this church that cares so much about your word um, that we would study it in the way that we do. Um, let us leave from here affected in all the right ways so that we could glorify you and in return that it would be edifying to us, Lord. Thank you so much for, for everything that you do and provide. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.